Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. With us here in New York, I'm pleased to say, Savita Subramaniam, Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, Head of U.S. Equity Strategy. Good morning to you, Savita. Good morning. Great what are you here. telling clients at the moment yeah. about December 15th, the line in the sand when tariffs could go on? What is it, $160 billion of Chinese imports? What's the yeah. message at the moment? And it's mostly consumer goods, which is, uh, which is different from what we've seen in the past. You know, I think the message is that if we get some sort of a skinny deal, I think we could see a really strong rally in the more cyclical areas of the market. Because my sense is that the market is actually pricing in a fairly dire scenario on trade. I mean, if you look at what's expensive within the S&P 500, it's utilities, it's consumer staples. These are, you know, the recession stocks of the S&P 500. It's not machinery and, and, you know, retailers. Those are the stocks that are really cheap. So my sense is that the market is actually pricing in not a great outcome from uh, from the, the the tariff scenario. Now, now, here I think is where it gets interesting. I don't see the trade war ending, even if we get some kind of skinny deal. I think what it turns into is more of a tech war. Um, so I think we're shifting from this trade war tariffs on you know soybeans to an, uh, to an environment where I think the real war is around technology, um, intellectual property, national security. And I think that could, could uh, continue for a lot longer. Are you actively telling clients they need to position their portfolios, their equity allocation with regards to those kind of concerns that you have. Absolutely. I mean, I think the way to think about this is that tech, which has been a market leader for, you know, 10 years running now, um, is one of the areas that could actually take it on the chin in the near term. I mean, not only do you have tariffs, not only do you have the idea of, you know, tech companies having to dislocate their supply chain, but you also have bipartisan support to regulate tech companies. So, you know, what I worry about within tech is the same thing that we saw in financials back in 2005. Um, so there's yeah, okay, trouble. fair. Yeah, should I sell my Amazon and Apple? That's all I want to know. So, I think if you're worried about the next year or two, I, I don't see Amazon and Apple or you know, just fang stocks in general, our big cap tech companies as retaining their leadership. I think there's even super with their crowded. revenue growth. If you look at the nominal GDP call Ethan Harris has and, and your team, yep. you're telling me to get out of revenue growth stocks with that are double digit in nature and go over to something with a much less revenue growth stream well, scheme? No, here's the thing. I think that the, the I mean, you, you, we all kind of know this, but the, the second derivative story for tech is less positive than it has fair, been in fair. the past. That's the calculus second, talk on a Wednesday, <laughs> folks. Just, you know. but, uh, but I think the second derivative story for, you know, potentially some of the more cyclical areas of the market could actually recover nicely if we see any sort of a, um, re, you know, resolution on trade in the near term. So, so I guess when I look at it, I think, okay, here's your tech companies that have crushed it for 10 years, yeah, fair, but fair. now they're super crowded. They're arguably a little bit more expensive than um, than they have Fair. been in the past. And we're seeing a lot of different catalysts okay, that could unseat that leadership. I, I, I love what you're saying, and I love your smart, smart research deck about how we're going to have this big shift to international, big shift to small, and big cap. What will be the proximate catalyst to make that occur? Is it as simple as Fed policy, or do we have to get more equity in nature or yield nature in our analysis? 
I don't know if it has to do with the Fed. I mean, so I think the biggest driver for rotations in style are the contours of the profit cycle. That's what we found in our quant work. And, and, you know, I think what's important here is we've gone from an environment of very, very slow decelerating growth to what looks like a reasonable acceleration in growth in 2020. And here's why I say that. So if you look at 2019 this year, it's been flat earnings growth. We've had a flat year on on, uh, S&P earnings. Next year, without a lot of great economic delivery, we're likely to see a better year. And amidst that pickup, this has historically been the biggest driver for value cycles over growth cycles, for small over large, for rest of world over US, is just the idea that we get some kind of a pickup in the profit cycle. Well, let's get your overweight, Savita. Financials, consumer discretionary, industrials, utilities. Yeah. They're your overweights into 2020. Those are our overweights. Give me some insight into the conversations you're having at the moment. Where's the pushback coming from? Yeah, so the pushback is why the heck are you overweight? utilities because it's really expensive and it looks like a bond. Um, I guess utilities is our hedge against, you know, things not going well over the next 12 months. And utilities, what I like about it is that it's got a dividend yield that's, a, you know, a couple of percentage points higher than bond yields. And, um, and it's basically, you know, it gives you what you think you're getting, regulated earnings growth, relatively smooth. The real pushback that we get is on financials because financials, everybody thinks we need the yield curve to steepen in order for financials to work. And here I totally disagree. I don't think you need the yield curve to steepen. I think financials is going to start to be acknowledged as a high quality dividend yield sector, which is something that we haven't really seen it as in a very long time. It was the levered toxic sector back in 2007. And I think that's how investors are painting it today. But the truth is the leverage ratio has been, you know, it's a shadow of its former self. These companies are arguably overcapitalized and their shareholder yield, if you add up share buybacks and dividend yield, shareholder yield for financials is the highest of all 11 sectors. Savita, you and I have talked about this many times. For this to work, you need a perception shift. You need investors to sit there and agree with you and not think that everything is just about a 10-year yield yield and the shape of the yield curve. You've seen evidence of that this year because actually some of these big names on Wall Street have performed really rather well through 2019. Is that already starting to happen? I think you're starting to get that acknowledgement that these are different companies than what, what we saw in 2008. And then, you know, also just the idea that they've been so shunned for so many years that their underweight positions are now arguably risky. If the stocks start to move at all, I think that investors are going to be forced to start adding exposure. I mean, financials is a sector where the average institutional manager is two standard deviations below his or her relative exposure to the sector. So that means that they basically hate financials right now. We're going to have to leave it there. Savita, thank you so much. Savita Subramanian with us with Bank of America. Thank you, Savita. Really optimistic view and really stating that this shift will occur. That's been a huge debate, John, on the show. Let's get to Lensley. Vinjamuri, who joins us now. Sheffield United is two points ahead. Leslie Vinjamuri knew that. Chatham House head of US and America's program. Don't worry, Leslie, we're not going to continue that conversation. We are oh, awaiting we are awaiting a bilateral <laughs> between Chancellor Angela Merkel and a president of the United States, Donald Trump, taking place just out, outside of London, England. We're going to bring that to our listeners in just a moment when it begins. But Leslie, what are you looking for? Outside of the body language and the spectacle, what are you listening for when these two start talking? 
Well, I mean, I think, you know, the, the, the big thing right now is are we going to see a unity and cohesion? And, of course, you know, the, the relationship between Angela Merkel and uh, Donald Trump has not been the easiest one. Of course, it's now being sort of overtaken, at least optically, by the relationship between Trump and Macron. I think there's more to say yeah. than that. But I think we will be looking to see, you know, are they on the same page Will they speak to internal issues in the alliance? Right. Uh, the, the the question of Turkey, I think that's probably less likely. But I, I really do think that this is just going to be, you know, can they wave the flag, as it were, of NATO and, and really right. put forward that, that common front? Leslie, you're such a student of this, of the U.S. and then folding in the European prism. I look at it as a fossil of SPD, the liberals being Willy Brandt and Conrad Adenauer's in the mix, and of course Helmut Kohl, who changed German politics. Does the president perceive Ms. Merkel as a conservative, or does he have a greater affinity to those in Germany, even more conservative? You know, I don't, to be very honest, I don't think Donald Trump is, is thinking in quite this way. I think he has an, a view of Germany in general that's driven by his antagonism Over automobiles. on the economic front, yeah. right? Over Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, in terms of sort of drilling down and thinking, you know, where does she stand relative yeah. to those Because he does it, Johnny. You pointed to. Just not what's yeah. motivating this president. Because Johnny does it with, uh, with Prime Minister Johnson, but he just can't translate that over to some of these other nations. Well, looking at Germany, I thought it was fascinating yesterday hearing the president call out Germany by name, Leslie, referring to the lack or the failure of getting the military spending up to 2% of GDP in the country and basically threatening to use trade as a tool to push the Germans to spend more on military. Leslie, this is something new that I don't think many people have been thinking about at all in the last couple of years as the president has made this book push. How are you thinking about that in the last 24 hours? Well, I, yeah, I mean, and remember, it's not just the last 24 hours. Donald Trump has, has linked sanctions to national security concerns for a little while right now. And I think for many of us, this is very distressing because, of course, especially when it comes to America's relationship with its most important allies, the idea that you would link questions of trade um, to national security concerns is is sort of contrary to you know what we've what we've witnessed over the last seven decades. So it's a, it is a very significant shift. It's one that's getting traction. He's taking it to the next level. Um, and but I don't think that it really plays. It doesn't play. You know, this is not the U.S.-China relationship. I yeah. don't think it plays actually back home in the same way. But and it and it alienates. Right. But it is, um, it, it, it's another thing driving a wedge through America and its European partners. We welcome all of you coast to coast and worldwide. A good conversation with Leslie Vinger Murray of Chatham House and her expertise across the Atlantic from London on the United States. John Farrow and Tom Keene, futures up 15, Dow futures up 155. We await uh, uh, this, the symbolism, a uh, huge symbolism of the leader of Germany and the United States of America at the 70th. NATO meetings. John? Leslie, let's continue this conversation, shall we? I think the president quite rightly identifies a problem. He's identified a problem with China that many people agree with him on. They need to open up. They have been stealing IP. There has been forced technology transfer. The disagreement has been about the approach. And as you say, his alienated allies. We see the same thing with NATO. They've all pledged to get military spending up to 2% of GDP. And let's be quite honest, some people even the Germans, haven't done enough to get themselves there. But once again, the president identifies a problem, then he's criticised for his approach. But, Leslie, I think many people are asking the following question. 
Okay, criticises approach, but what did previous administrations do? And why should we continue with that very same approach if we are just going to end up with the same results? What do you say back to that, Leslie? Well, first of all, you know, let, let's break that down. Um, on, the, on the question of uh, European contributions to defense spending, hitting that 2% target, this is something that preceded Donald Trump. Um, the uh, increase in European spending proceeded, you know, began really in 2014. It's, con it's continued and taken on more steam, and it's certainly gotten a lot more visibility because of the rhetorical line taken by the president, a very aggressive rhetorical line. But that, you know, that push right. dates predates the president. On China, absolutely. You know, people have been wanting to level the playing field with China for some time. And Donald Trump has certainly been the, the person that's taken this. He's driven it forward. And I think it's game changing, regardless of what we see, who we see in does, the White House post-2020. Does the president change international, American rather, foreign relations? Is it so seismic, this different approach by the gentleman from Manhattan, that it's a permanent change to how America addresses its foreign policy? You know, this is the question that everybody wants the answer to. We've been certainly discussing it, frankly, all morning at Chatham House. Um, uh, and it, it's, it's, it's clearly the case that he's taken some things that I think were a long-term, long-time coming, America's relationship with China, reorienting it, taking a harder line on trade. Um, and, and driven them forward. And I do think that the, the style and the attention that he's given to those changes, you know, they predate the president, but he's made them front and center. Will we see the continued style of diplomacy that we've seen under this president? I don't think so. I think it's very hard to imagine yeah. any anybody other than this president um, pursuing right. the kind of diplomacy that he's pursued with America's allies. Uh, but will America ask for more on the global stage? Yes, I think it will, of its of its allies as well as of its adversaries. And John, and Doc, 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 going to continue to be put in that second yeah. that second bracket. Dr. Vinjamary absolutely nails this about this idea of substance versus style, and so much of the reporting John ignores the substance that could be permanent of this absolutely unique president. And whether things are going to change, Leslie, I think is an important point. I, I just look at the situation and wonder what the electorate actually wants, what the demands of the electorate will be. Do they want to go back to the old way of doing things, which is getting countries together in Europe, playing nicely and saying to China, please open up? Or do they want this more confrontational approach from their leader here in America? Is that what they want on the international stage? What's your perception of what the electorate wants to see, Leslie? I don't think that people are behind. I think you know, there's there's a peeling off of support for this, this style of trade wars because it's so far not delivered any results. Um, it's you know it's destabilized. It's it's raised. You know protectionism has gotten worse. The the the, the numbers aren't getting better. Um, and so I think that mm -hmm. people are aware that now this is an issue, but is it really changing the playing field? Is it really leveling yeah. the playing field? Is Donald Trump taking on the bigger issues? I think Americans are, are pretty aware that, you know, it's the right issue, but it's the wrong approach. We th we thank so you I think they're looking for a more strategic approach. We thank you for listening. Dr. Vinja Murray with us here from Chatham House. Jay, uh, John is a supporter of the President of the United States. We're thrilled. I think he's, I think he's taking advantage of municipal bonds. Jay uh, emails in and says, 
says the president is more like Churchill and the U.S. founders. He considers uh, the European leaders smug and self-righteous. I mean, Leslie, that is a perception of Republicans and Democrats in America. Do you, do you buy the idea European leaders have a smugness about America? First of all, is it a perception of Republicans? And I think that's a broad, you know, too, far too broad a brush. If you okay. look at the data that's coming out of serious places like the Chicago Council, like Pew, the vast majority of Americans want to be in NATO. They want to cooperate with Europe. They want to be internationally engaged. There are certain things that they don't want to do anymore, troop deployments. They'd like to see scaled back. Um, but, I, you know, to sort of, the Republican Party, I don't think, is in any way anti-European. Um, and the question of smugness is really, again, it's, I'm not so sure how helpful it is. I think there's always been an yeah. admiration of, of European leaders. But in, regardless what Americans think of the president, nobody likes to see you know, the, the president being talked about um, negatively uh, because it, it sort of reflects badly on the entire country. So it's incredibly complicated. Really. I want to explore this relationship with China and the United States just a little bit further. There are some people that might argue time is up. The labor arbitrage has taken place. The plants have been built on the mainland. Western multinationals will do anything to keep a foothold in the country now, despite the fact there seems to be serious allegations of human rights violations in the mainland at the moment. With the exception of big tech and perhaps finance as well, I think at the moment gaining entry to this market is perhaps not the issue it once was. It's keeping access. And I think keeping access may well be the issue in the next few decades. China is not going to become more like the United States. And a question I've been thinking about, Leslie, is how does a multinational company succeed navigating what The Economist in the last weekend called two spheres of influence, the American sphere of influence and the Chinese sphere of influence? And I think about it in the following terms. How does a multinational company please a progressive consumer in the West in a country like America and a repressive state abroad in a country like China. How does that kind of company succeed on the global stage in the coming 10 years? How do they do that, Leslie? I think it is difficult because, of course, consumers in the West are becoming much more attuned to issues of labor standards, of environmental regulations, of, you know, a number of what we might consider progressive policies are really becoming uh, things that people, individuals, certainly in the United States and Europe, are taking very, very seriously. And they want to know when they're buying from a multinational, when they're engaging, that, that China is um, hitting the same standard that they would expect of, of an American company back home. So it's, it's complicated. But I think that the harder choices you know, for, for multinationals are, are balancing governments and not, really, not necessarily balancing consumers. On the human rights question, very tricky, right? Clearly, there's now more pressure coming out of Congress um, on the human rights question. Uh, you know, human rights is something that America ha takes very seriously, Americans take seriously, but, but selectively. It's always been selective. Um, and if you look even at the most recent legislation, there are exceptions written in saying that, you know, that the president can, on the Uyghur bill, could, could waive sanctions um, if he determined that this would be in the national interest to do so. So even the legislation, which is potentially very powerful if it, if it is becomes uh, part of law, um, has exceptions written in, and, that, and that's pretty much the story of America's human rights department. Well, Leslie, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but I think this is an important question. If China wasn't the world's second largest economy, if it didn't have the consumer base that so many of these companies want access to, 
if we had these kind of allegations of human rights abuses in any other country, would we be looking at doing a trade deal with them? Um, it's, it's clearly a very difficult issue. And again, uh, China's not the only country in which human rights are a very serious issue, which is in no um, way, shape or form to diminish them. Think about North Korea, right? Think about the commission of inquiry that was released uh, investigating the human rights abuses in North Korea. And that at the moment has pretty much been set aside in order to try and engage, you know, selectively again with talks on the non-proliferation issue. So America, when it engages abroad, has a set of priorities and it tries to balance them. And of course, human rights is a through line, but it has been selectively applied. And China's not the only country in which, you know, there's a sort of oscillation based on a range of a range of interests. Leslie Vinjamari, thank you so much for Chatham Mouse. We greatly appreciate it this morning. Jane Foley joining us now, phoning in from London, the capital of global foreign exchange, Rabobank head of FX strategy. Jane, why is Sterling up here ahead of some serious event risk next week? Well, I think the market thinks that perhaps the event risk is is relatively muted. Now, we've got to remember, of course, that uh, um, although there is still over a week, just over a week to go until the election, there's been lots of reports in in the UK suggesting that uh, Boris Johnson's advisers have really tried to keep a lid on what he can say. Now, if you go back to the 2017 election, uh, at that point, certainly at the beginning of that election campaign, PMA, the the previous Tory uh, Prime Minister, had at least a 10-point lead. And then that lead narrowed. And of course, if you remember, uh, we ended up when she didn't manage to have a majority at that uh, election. So it seems that, or at least these are the reports which have been uh, circulated, it seems that Johnson's advisers are taking note from that and are telling him only to give one word, uh, short, sort of popular uh, responses, and also to say very little. Now, the market seems to be inferring that if that policy remains, then he can hold on to this lead in the polls, meaning that if he gets into power uh, next week, he will have sufficient uh, votes to push his withdrawal agreement through Parliament. Now, for now, the market's associating that withdrawal agreement to mean that there will not be a a no-deal Brexit. But of course, next year, the trade talks have to start, and that might bring back the threat of a no-deal Brexit if they don't go well. So, Jane, let's talk about the polls and how the polls translate into seats. I think this is the big challenge for a lot of people. The polls have been pretty consistent over the last couple of weeks, maybe even the last couple of months. The Conservatives in the low 40s, the Labour Party in the low 30s. How does that number translate into seats one? Well, it's quite complicated, and the reason for that, as you know, of course, is because in the UK it's it's the first past the post system, meaning that really the election has really been fought over just a, a finite number of of, of 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 seats that could go either way. Now, um, from, from that point of view, it's difficult to extrapolate the percentage uh, uh, that we see in many of the polls back to what it means for seats. But last week there was a poll that did extrapolate that and, and suggest that it meant a very comfortable uh, working majority. Uh, for, for, for PM Johnson. Now, since then, some other polls have suggested that maybe that lead is, is, is not uh, uh, what it will be in reality for Johnson, perhaps because the Labour Party manifesto had plenty of popular content, yeah. and perhaps that should uh, uh, give, up, give uh, additional support for the Labour Party. Uh, but generally speaking, yeah. 
uh, what some pollsters are suggesting that as a rule of thumb, as long as the, the Tories are around about nine points, percentage points ahead of Labour in right. most of the polls that we're seeing, that will mean that he could have a majority. Jane Foley, you talk about event risk. Me putting up the Christmas tree is event risk. It's that ugly. I got to pay for the thing. What's the trade right now? Is there an opportunistic pair you can recommend into the end of the year to play through January and February? Well, I, I think it probably has to be sterling. We, we a lot of good news in terms of um, Brexit is already in the price of sterling. But I think if, if Johnson wins, I think it could probably go higher, maybe to 132. So very much uh, obviously depends on, on the election. Aside from that, um, you know, I'm still quite bearish on currencies like the Aussie. We saw that move again this week in the uh, uh, with some, some better news and more optimistic change from the RBA and then some worse news overnight in the form of their GDP. I think that's going to be a very interesting story next year. More cuts potentially from the RBA and maybe quantitative easing. So that's going to be a very interesting story uh, into the new year. And then, of course, the Swedish krona, a rate hike potentially at this month from, from the Riks back. Wow. Swedish krona go further up on the back of that. So that's a very interesting story as well. Do you play kroner versus the euro or versus the dollar or versus something else I don't know? I think it's generally versus the krona, and that's because, of course, the trade links between uh, Sweden and the euro are so strong. So um, yeah. that's more meaningful, really, for uh, the Swedish economy. That's abandoning euro stock. Abandoning those, uh, negative interest rates. We're starting to see it, aren't we, Jane? And I just wonder whether we're going to see it a whole lot more on a bigger stage as, say, the ECB. What is the attitude on the continent at the moment towards negative interest rates at a place like the Riksbank, at a place like the ECB? Well, the Riksbank, I think, are a really interesting example because you could say, well, look, hold on a minute. Why why would they possibly hike interest rates when you've got their biggest trading partner in having cut interest rates this year, the Eurozone, of course, where we have uh, growth arguably slipping uh, in, in Sweden? Why would they hike interest rates now? And one of their big concerns, and they're quite candid about it, is that they are concerned about the level of household debt. Now, Asset price inflation, like in, in, in many countries, since the global financial crisis has been strong, house prices have gone up quite a lot. And as, as individuals have to chase house prices better to get on that property or chase house prices higher to get on that property ladder, they've ended up with a large amount of disposable, um, uh, debt as a percentage of disposable income. And that's the case in many countries, yeah. Australia, uh, New Zealand, um, various countries around the globe, Canada, another one. So that is a big concern, and it seems that the pushback against negative yields really is spreading. We've seen more conversation um, in, in Japan, um, in the Eurozone, um, and, and, and this is part of what, what's informing the RBA's decision, and probably one of the reasons why the RBA have said, look, we're not going to cut interest rates beyond right. 0.25, we'll do quantitative easing instead. Very good. Jane Foley with us, informing us with good conversation. Leslie Vinger-Murray, before this special edition of Bloomberg Surveillance, as John Farrell and I in New York await an important uh, discussion of the Chancellor of Germany and the President of the United States. John, I believe the President will have other bilaterals, and I believe even with them being so far behind their schedule, he has a separate press conference at this point scheduled later in the New York afternoon. So the day is already... 
running a little bit later oh, than no, it was meant to. What do you think we're behind? I think we're behind like a solid half hour on the schedule. Uh, it's more than that now. It's, it's, yeah. it's more than that now. It's more than 40 But we minutes. welcome all of you. Jane Foley still with us with Robobank giving us wonderful perspective on the litmus paper of the system. We thank her for her appearance here uh, uh, today as well. John and I are looking at a set of news flow. Uh, we haven't talked much about impeachment as well. John, I would point out that this impeachment committee hearing today is original. We actually have people that know what they're talking about. Four law professors, Jonathan Turley uh, in the Washington Examiner writing up with a really piercing essay about the narrowness of this impeachment proceeding historically. Not He's not pro-Trump, but he certainly tilts towards a more Republican man's. And Noah Feldman, who writes for Bloomberg Opinion, has been of huge value to me with his history of the Supreme Court. I haven't Dr. heard, Feldman will be Tom, there I haven't well. heard a decent argument yet as to why this is not a lose-lose situation for the Democrats at the moment. How do they come out looking good from all of this? And looking good with the electorate, because in the court of public opinion, that's what matters here. And over the last month well, or so, it's not clear to me in the polls that they're bringing the court of public opinion along with them. I, I don't disagree with that, but I would suggest there are different electorates out there. And from day one here, and Speaker Pelosi fighting the process the entire way, uh, Speaker Pelosi it was finally caved in, if you will, and they're speaking to a certain electorate uh, riveted by this. And John, to your point, and Jim Glassman on Jobs Day mentioned this in his travels for J.P. Morgan. There's a huge part of the country where it's like, okay, what do you have, John? ADP report coming out in about five or six I minutes missed that. time. I missed Please that. say that James Foley of Rubber Bank is still with us. So, Jane, let's talk about it. Labor market data coming up through the week. Tomorrow, initial jobless claims. The payrolls report is coming up on Friday. So, Jane, what are your thoughts? What are you looking for in the jobs numbers in America? Well, I think this is going to be a fascinating one because, of course, this week we haven't had particularly good data from the manufacturing sector. And the question is, you know, is this weakness in the manufacturing sector, is it pushing into or will it push into the labor market? And, and if that's the case, you know, I, I do think that the market will begin to take a, a different view on, on the Federal Reserve, begin to be worried about the, the or Powell's glass half full outlook on, on the U.S. economy. So I think the payrolls number, if it is weaker than expected, if there are signs that there is softening there, um, you I think that would be quite a nasty signal. You know, Jane, I look at the Fed and I look at the meeting to December and then there's a January 29 meeting. I mean, I I think I'm guilty of this. The media focuses on the next event, obviously. Are you focused on December 11 as the be-all, end-all? Or is it much more into the meetings of 2020? I think it's really the meetings of 2020, but I think we all need to, to watch very carefully the rhetoric, watch the guidance, watch any watch out for any shifts, um, and, and therefore it is going to be, I think, all about 2020, but I don't think that we can overlook any of the meetings that are coming yeah. up. I think they could all provide quite interesting clues, potentially. Hugely valuable. Jane Foley, thank you so much for joining us on the desk of Rabobank uh, in London. Bloomberg Opinion, informed perspectives, and expert data-driven commentary on breaking news. Good morning, everyone. Tom Keen in New York. This is the interview of the day on the American military and, of course, our extension across the Atlantic in the history the 70th anniversary of NATO. It is without question a timely interview on the state of the Pentagon in Washington. We do this with James Stravitas. What you need to know within the heritage of Supreme Allied Commander... It started in 1951 with a gentleman named Eisenhower. The esteemed Ridgeway followed, 
and then on to some wonderful names from the past, including General Haig, uh, General Galvin, and I really want to mention John Shalakashvili as well. And they're all generals, and then someone from the sea shows up, the Admiral. Admiral Stravitas, what was it like to be the first Navy guy in the room? What what was the body language as a gentleman of the Navy walked in the NATO door? Yeah, it was bad. Uh, I, I, I had a sense of uh, 15 generals spinning in their graves. Uh, it was really a shock to the system. In fact, my memoir of those uh, NATO days as Supreme Commander is called The Accidental Admiral, and I think that's what everyone thought. It was just some kind of a huge computer error that uh, delivered me to those shores. Well, we are honored to have you with us today and certainly to distill what we've observed. I would go back, Admiral, to the suits and ties politicking as they do. And we should say that Admiral Stavitas was vetted briefly as a vice presidential candidate along the last path. But I would say, James Stavitas, that there was the uh, gentle dodging of Russian missiles involved with Turkey. And then the photo opportunity of Mr. Erdogan next to Mr. Trump. Explain how NATO and the serious business of the military should adjust to Russian missiles in Turkey. Yeah, let's uh, let's make a point first, which is NATO is a military alliance, Tom, but your point, its center of gravity is decidedly political. And what we're seeing are centrifugal forces pulling at the alliance today. France's Macron calling it brain dead. Trump sending out ambivalent signals about Article 5. And here we come to Turkey. Erdogan leaning out of the alliance, buying Russian missile systems. We can't integrate those with NATO air defenses. And by the way, he's also conducting joint patrols on the Syrian-Turkish border with Russia and the Russian armed forces. So this is a moment of real uh, discord within the alliance. Does the Pentagon have the president's ear? I mean, he has uh, established a tone which I have said has Republican and Democrat support, which is, as he said, shape up to Europe. That resonates with a certain American public. How does his tone resonate with his Pentagon? Um, it's a mixed picture, and one example was just last week when he issued a series of pardons for uh, some of the special forces members who were accused of war crimes. Um, that was a real point of disagreement. On NATO, the Pentagon is glad that the president presses the allies to spend more and is having some positive result there. But the, the Pentagon is also concerned about his lack of enthusiasm, shall we say, for supporting Article 5, because that undermines the confidence of our partners uh, across the Atlantic. The different people that we have in NATO, and we have the images of our youth, for those who are younger, of substantial American presidents in Germany with the tension of a divided East and West Germany and the complexities of Berlin and the Iron Curtain. But if I look at the 266th Financial Management Support Center, part of the 21st Theater Sustainment Command, what do we actually do in Europe today, Admiral? Um, first and foremost, we have uh, training exercises where we integrate with our partners. And, Tom, that's where we train to go forward and fight in Afghanistan, where NATO was fully engaged. When I commanded that mission, 150,000 NATO troops in Afghanistan. So Europe is where we train, equip, and organize those forces. 
Secondly, logistics. You just mentioned logistics. Um, the logistic ability to move those troops forward to not only Afghanistan, but to the Balkans, to the Libyan campaign, to maritime operations off the coast of East Africa for piracy, all that is centered in the NATO command structure, which is in Europe. So I'd say uh, we still need those bases. I'll close, Tom, by saying at the height of the Cold War, you mentioned General Galvin. At the height of the Cold War, yeah. he had 400 bases all around Europe. Um, today, we're down to something like 15 serious bases. So we've already reduced that base structure by 90 percent. I'd say it's about right where it is. Do they want us there? So much of the tone that I'm hearing in the endless interviews of suits and ties and occasional dresses in London here at, at, the, at the Grove, north of London at Watford, we avoid the question, do they want us there? What is your belief on that right now, Admiral? I think they very strongly want us there. Uh, President Macron's comments about NATO being brain dead are really driven by a dwindling confidence that the Europeans have in whether the U.S. will come forward or not. That's why it's so important for the president to step up on this Article 5, even as he correctly continues to pressure the Europeans to spend more. So at the end of the day, uh, Europe, again, is a political alliance. Its center of gravity is confidence in Article 5. Um, the Europeans want us there but they're a little less confident than they were, say, five to ten years ago. We what, need to work on that. What is the task of General Walters now of the United States Air Force with his leadership for America at NATO? What is his task, given what the president has said in the last 48 hours? Uh, first of all, his principal operational task is to continue the uh, the operations in Afghanistan, where we have 20,000 NATO troops uh, much reduced, but still a very significant mission. Secondly, he'll want to keep his eye on the Balkans. Thirdly, mm -hmm. he'll want to keep his eye on the Arctic. And fourthly, he'll want to deter Russia, what he is trying to do at the political level, working with the Secretary General of NATO, Jens Stoltenberg of Norway, is to uh, convince the Secretary General and those men and women in suits and dresses to convince the United States to continue mm -hmm. to move forward. He has both a diplomatic and a military role to play. And by the way, General Todd Walters was part of my team when I was NATO commander. He's a superb officer and a great choice for the job. Admiral Stavridis, thank you so much. Near four years as Supreme uh, Allied Commander Europe uh, for the United States Navy and for uh, the United States of America. James Stavridis, and I really can't say enough about his new book, strong book, 10 or so chapters on admirals. I commend to you folks the single chapter on the gentleman from submarines, Admiral Rickover. Paul, as you know, there's any number of 2020 views the year this ahead. year, next year. Yes. U.S. media forecast, all these kind of things you have to read. And the answer is you actually read Brian Weezer, a pivotal in this on the United Kingdom, but, but more on the U.S. Why don't you begin, Brian, on uh, the nuances of a nice executive summary of, of, of the path forward? Exactly. Brian Weezer, he is uh, Group M Global President of Business Intelligence. He is the go-to person when we're talking global advertising. Uh, Brian, thanks so much for joining us on, on the phone. So let's talk about 2019, first of all. A pretty good year for advertising, right? Yeah, no, it, it definitely was a very strong year. 
you know, it's unusually strong, uh, as 2018 was too. And you could then beg the question, well, why was it so unusually strong? And uh, the reality is that uh, there's so many digital-based, digital-first, digital-endemic marketers, the likes of Amazon, like Facebook, as a marketer again, not as a as a seller of advertising. Dozens of companies are probably driving almost all the growth, and uh, it's skewing growth into digital. And so it makes it look like we have a really healthy advertising market, but it's not sustainable at these levels. So, Brian, is this just a story? As we think about global advertising, you mentioned some of the big digital players. Is this just a game of the haves and have-nots that, you know, if you're a Google and a Facebook, life is great, but if you're a CBS or, you know, a Comcast or a Disney and you've got broadcast and cable networks, it's not such a good story? That's a good way to put it. I, I, it's not exactly uh, uh, terribly negative for, uh, you know, TV-centric media owners. It's just not necessarily going to be much of a growth market uh, anytime soon. And I think if we look at now, print is um, really it's all bad. Uh, you know, radio is kind of stable. Outdoors are really healthy medium, um, which may surprise some. Um, but yeah, haven't had not is a, right. a general way to characterize it. Brian, one of your great things at Group M, and of course before that at Pivotal, was the idea of traditional TV is not dead. Everybody calling for the death of TV and you saying, no, no, no. What I'm seeing, and I mentioned this earlier, folks, my anecdotal evidence is pretty much everybody on the planet in some way or another is using YouTube. In your analysis, do you fit in YouTube revenue? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, now, YouTube is still primarily something you would bucket into the digital uh, or yeah. internet line item because the vast majority of spending is meant to be comparable to internet related advertising. Yeah. Um, and it's a big piece of, uh, of spending. Absolutely. Well, but compare it, it to the small slices is YouTube. If Brian Weiser is YouTube bigger than newspapers. Not yet. Not yet. Um, okay. uh, but that said, uh, it's not hard to imagine YouTube being bigger than newspapers. That's a fun headline to think about at some point soon. Um, because at the end of the day, newspapers continue to shrink uh, by double digits, even including newspapers' digital revenues. You know, we're estimating about $12 billion on uh, on newspapers today. Um, I don't have a – YouTube obviously doesn't disclose uh, its numbers. But, yeah, YouTube's probably not that far from, uh, from newspapers. So, Brian, let's let's talk about the ad agencies here. Um you know, there's been a concern that maybe they're getting disintermediated, that you don't really need to go to a big ad agency. All you need to do is kind of go to Google or Facebook and they'll put the dollars where, you know, the people are. What's your call or what's your thought about how the the, uh, the big ad agencies, the WPPs, the Omnicoms of the world, how do they fit into the mix going forward? Yeah, well, generally, the largest marketers certainly benefit from having agencies. There's reasons why many of them choose to uh, do certain parts of their marketing activities uh, themselves, whether that's the creative or the media side. Uh, you know, and they've got to consider the, the there's pros and cons to doing so, right? Yes, you can probably move faster in some ways um, if you do everything uh, yourself, but then maybe the choices aren't as uh, involving as broad or deep a knowledge base as if you're using uh, an external entity. It's the very same issue that I think every industry has, every professional services industry yeah. has with respect to insourcing versus outsourcing. Um, just today, though, you know, one of our competitors, uh, um, just sorry, in Adweek about um, Cody, which is a many, um, obviously, packaged goods company, just sending their uh, media back to an agency 
Um, Interesting. Interesting. So that happens all the time, too. I, I mean, what's so interesting here is we're all experiencing new ways of delivering these messages uh, to us. And, you know, like, Brian, let's just go through them now. A given sports meet, they're now staying with the sports event on part of the screen as they show the ad. Mm-hmm. Who's winning when they do that? Does ExxonMobil sending a message win or do they lose? You know, I think the long-term health of the business uh, for any given medium will definitely benefit from, uh, you know, trying to put a consumer experience first. Uh, I think that this has been a problem for television in the United States more generally. Uh, commercial clutter is a problem. Uh, unfortunately, most large advertisers look on a very short-term basis. It, it doesn't necessarily yeah. uh, prove to be less effective. But I would argue that if the consumer experience is really negative, it, it generally will make it a less desirable environment over time. Oh, you mentioned time. What's the appropriate time ad for Brian Weezer? Three seconds? (laughs) (laughs) That's a good length. I try to be brief. No, no, but but uh, no, I meant the ad length. It's three seconds. Can we get out to 15 seconds? Or is that too long now? You know, it totally depends. Uh, I just saw someone who's a TikToker, not the Bloomberg former TikTok, uh, TikTok, but um, someone doing a TikTok thing where you can imagine a three-second ad uh, fitting really well. Bloomberg's um, but, in tra- <laughs> <laughs> but in But in traditional TV, you know, the idea of the two-minute ad break has generally worked. Um, so it really just depends on the medium and the context in which the message is being delivered. Well, sports is still king. I see that Fox sold all their ads, maybe like $5.6 million yeah, like each or something yeah. like that. So, Brian, sports is still there, right? Yeah, I think so. Um, there's been maybe overinvestment in some respects in uh, sports on the part of, of networks. Um, it is still uh, the environment that will capture more live viewing. Um, it's still really important. It's you know, ten to fifteen percent of all TV viewing is sports, and it probably wow. you know has disproportionate value. We have to leave it there, Brian Weiser. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.